0: Don't mess with me. You know I had to take my shoes off to count to two. All right? That's just not fair. Yeah, but oh. six is your favorite
1: number.
0: All right. There goes the family-friendly rating right off the bat. And Mark didn't even get to do it. So hey, all you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans. It's time for <laughs> your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction fat passions and fantastical <laughs> fantasies. A place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place so without further ado, we're going to introduce you to our guest. You might have might have heard him somewhere before. His name is Mark Wandry. So uh, Mark, can you tell the, the people living under rocks who might not know who you are, who you are?
2: Um, Mark Wandry, Mark H. Wandry. I'm a, I've been an author since I was about seven years old. It took me about 40 years to figure out how to actually do it for a living. Uh, and I started my career by publishing a, a military, uh, sorry, actually a space opera series called the uh, um, Earth Song Series. And uh, did it to, to great acclaim. I think my biggest uh, royalty check at that point was enough to buy a Happy Meal. But uh, eventually I discovered military science fiction and went in that direction and worked with Chris Kennedy and my career took off and I decided to quit my day job and be a full-time author just about exactly three years ago now.
0: All right, that, uh, that sounds like <laughs> a plan. And uh, let me see if I can get this over here. While you... Um, Tell us about yours. Oh, the next part. See, this is what you get for messing me up, Doc. She's trying to tell me we have a, a better version of the cover with more pixels and stuff. This is where I smile and not and pretend I know what any of that means. But uh, now we get to talk about how we first found them. So, Doc, how did you first find Mark Wandry?
1: Uh, I got dragged over at a party and said, this is Mark Wandry. And I went, okay. <laughs> no. Okay, uh, hey, it was Liberty Con, and I think actually we were in the con suite. I was serving booze during um, the op- the um, Celebration Shindig that we did at the, after the opening ceremonies or something. And that it was this good. is our quandary. He, uh, he writes uh, for Horseman Universe, and I went, um, hi, what's your drink? <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, plying people with booze. They ply me with books. It's only fair. We exchange bees.
0: Okay. That does. It did, me. but but I wasn't going to say anything because I'm a good boy.
1: I was up at right. this morning.
0: You get an excuse, and you just came back from a little shindig or something with a couple thousand people, way bigger than that. No no, 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 no. 150
1: but... people, and is why I sound like Hannah Montana right now.
0: Does that mean you're going to break out in song?
1: Not any. That's repeatable. Is that a wrecking I ball, ball? i see. do that when I'm drunk.
0: All right, so I actually met or found Mark through through Chris. So when I first started um, reading, when I got my first Kindle, i was getting back into that after a hiatus for some health issues, getting blown up. I'll do that to you. I um, found his Progenitors War series, and when he stopped writing that, he said he sent it out in one of his social medias that that he was doing that to work on a story with somebody called Mark Wandry. And first I cussed him out, cussed you out because I was kind of mad I wanted that series to end and he sort of left it on a cliffhanger. But then I read it and you know, kind of liked it. So here we are, I found you through through your co-author. Probably one of the rare people to tell you that, huh?
2: Pretty much. So,
0: <laughs> All right, Doc, you gotta ask him the most important question and we decided ah. he gets to stay.
1: Star Wars, Firefly or Star Trek? Yes. Uh, I guess we have to keep them. <laughs> okay.
2: If I had to pick one, it would be Star Wars because it goes back the farthest with me. I uh, went and saw it when I was 12 years old in the movie theater in Tacoma. And uh, it, it literally changed my life. I think I saw it 26 times in the theaters before it finally went away.
1: That's a lot
2: yeah. of sitting still. Yeah, it's a lot of popcorn too.
1: So okay, well then um fantasy religion question. Okay. Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, or Forgotten Realms. I'm changing it uh, up. Nobody ever says Game of Thrones, so I'm changing it up.
2: <laughs> Never liked Forgotten Realms. So uh, Lord of the Rings for the mythos, Harry Potter for the storytelling.
1: Okay, that's fair. Yeah, no, we you used to ask Game of Thrones, but nobody ever says Game of Thrones. So I don't um, know that there
0: are as many like iconic fantasy that crossed over to TV. Because what do you notice? Star Trek, Star Wars, and Firefly. Not only were they books, they were TV, so they sort of affected culture. There's not as started as, much- as TV. Um,
2: started yeah.
0: Okay, well, maybe that's why. But anyway, so we were looking for something equally as iconic, and Game of Thrones was for a while. I remember when everyone was like, "You better not spoil Game of
1: Thrones." And then there was the, there was the final season.
2: It's, <laughs> it's an true. epic example on how not to finish a run. That's for sure.
1: Yeah, I I love to say it was beta testing the ending for all the book readers. That works. <laughs> so, um,
2: yeah, they better you just better not do that when they finish it. Let's like write something entirely new. Hold it, did I say germ and write it in the same sentence? Uh, never mind. He's too busy no, no, playing no, no, on Twitter.
1: Trouble. So, which one was your first love, sci-fi or fantasy?
2: Uh, science fiction. Okay. I'm only a casual fan of fantasy. Like um, my wife, Joy, she would read 10 fantasy books for every sci-fi, I would read uh, 20 sci-fi books for every fantasy.
0: So what is it that you love about science fiction?
2: I'm a child of the space age, the space race. I watched the Neil Armstrong step on the moon at uh, five years old and uh, discovered star Trek at almost exactly the same time. Of course it was reruns when I discovered it, but it still spoke to me. Um, I, I had a little book when I was a little kid that's a a, little animated book that says you will live on the moon. And, uh, uh, I mean, just it it was something that I believed would happen. And then reality and politics set in, and it didn't happen. Um, So needless to say, I'm a very excited camper right now. Elon Musk is my god. Um, uh, I think we're seeing the beginning of what we thought we would see 50 years ago. At least I hope we are. So naturally, it just leads me in the direction of when I started doing fiction. Although, really, the first book I ever wrote was about dinosaurs, but that was like 50 years ago.
0: I mean, dinosaurs are pretty awesome.
2: They're pretty
0: so cool. That. And um, everybody
2: that. that
0: everybody that loves science and science fiction and space likes Elon. People investing in cryptocurrency, not so much.
2: Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I still, uh, magic money to me, I don't quite get
0: it. So, so what was your first uh, memory of engaging in? in um, speculative fiction. Was it going to Star Wars and watching the movie? Was it the Star Trek and watching the man land on the moon? Where did you first discover the genre?
2: Um, watching
1: a man land on the moon is not in the genre. That is scientific fact, Jr. Allegedly. You know we yes, we landed on the moon and we never went back because guys litter. <laughs>
2: I should have worn my other shirt. My, I have a I have a NASA shirt that has the NASA meatball and it says not flat on it, and along the bottom it says no really we checked. Um, the uh, <laughs> I mean really it, it was it was it was it was Star Wars and Star Trek that did that, but watching the real thing and then um, my real exposure <laughs> speculative was uh, a little game came out called Traveller in the mid 70s that I discovered and thought, oh wow, I can actually write my own space adventures. And um, well, yeah, that's really not true because actually I found Heinlein before that. So Robert Heinlein's novel, The Rolling Stones, was the first science fiction novel I remember reading. So it probably was the first one. And within a matter of uh, a couple of weeks, I had eaten every Heinlein book in the library, not literally, but you know, uh, well, actually, it's kind of literally. Uh, and at that point, I had to go out to local libraries, and I was like raiding the local libraries for science fiction. The librarians would say, what do you want, little boy? And I'm like, sci-fi. They'd look at me and roll their eyes and point me at the right section. But and then that led to being a gamer, and then that led to being a gay writer, and the rest is history.
0: So did you uh, enjoy Gamma World when that came out as well?
2: No, actually, I was more of a fan of uh, Twilight 2000 and uh, the Aftermath, the game. It, uh, I think Gamma Roar is a little
0: too heavy on the weird magic stuff. Well, fair enough. All right. So, how did your love of. Well, first off, when you comes to cool sci fi shirts and NASA shirts, my favorite I saw was a picture of the planet and it said, Dear NASA, I was big enough for your mother, signed Pluto. <laughs> <laughs> That's my favorite because Pluto's still a planet. Dang it. They're all right. Even
2: favorite, at the Spoiler no. Scout my favorite non snarky NASA shirt is one that's got a picture of an asteroid heading to the planet and it says asteroids of uh, asteroids are nature's way of saying hey how's that space program coming
0: <laughs> I do like that one I'll yeah, have to that's look cool. for it that's
2: a so good how answer. did
0: you how did your love of speculative fiction translate into you writing stories in it was it just saying dinosaurs got boring I want to try something else how'd that happen
2: um, it was just literally a natural thing I would read. I I literally tried copying Highland stories early on. And then when Battlestar Galactica came out, I just kind of wrote this ripoff trope of it, sort of, you know, it was, uh, I I called it um, Starblock Aquatica was my name for it. And it was just this, huge ship the size of a of a, of a, of a, of a planet you know, of course they have to do it bigger you know that's how that works and I had the crazy idea that everybody was like an aquatic human so that the thing was full of water and, they, and uh, I never of course finished anything in it but it was just my way of realizing that I could take something somebody else did and give it a twist and there might be some possibilities in there
0: So have you found some of those early works that you could potentially release to your Patreon fans if they uh if you, if you had it oh, yeah, you have help doing that, yeah. He was telling me he did that. So I thought that'd be as find good,
2: it it and finding it actually doing it are two different things. Uh, that story that one I told you about, like, a minute ago, I, I don't know that's lost to history, but I do have a notebook that has about six or eight short stories that I wrote probably in the early 1980s, maybe late seventies. Those may find their way in eventually, uh, like there's and those are mostly um, post apocalyptic stuff that was my first genre i like to write in uh, i discovered men's adventure series like uh, john stone's the ashes and ahern's Survival series And that stuff was cuz i'm also a child of the of the cold war so that was like we're going to get nuked any day you know so this is how this is all going to work and everything and I, I i i devoured the genre as much as i could and uh, and tried you know, flexed my muscles by writing in it. Nothing ever published in it. In fact, the closest I finally got was when I started writing my zombie apocalypse series. I probably had a chance to dance down that road a little bit, Um, but that's the direction I went instead. So it really took me a while to get into space, I guess you could say.
0: Okay. So the uh, many authors let their real life um, experience influence the stories they tell. So were there any specific formidable moments that shape you as a storyteller?
2: We didn't travel much as a kid. Um, I was extremely unhappy with my father for not taking me down to Florida to watch rockets launch and stuff like that. But he, he was very grounded. He, this is the irony. The man did, made his career working for Boeing as an aerospace uh, uh, machinist. So he made parts for rockets, stuff like that, but had no interest in watching them launch. Uh, I would have happily sold a, you know, a, a redundant organ to get a chance to go down and watch something take off. But I never got a chance until uh, uh, Joy and I Joy my wife. Joy went down to Florida and we watched the, the uh, test flight of the Falcon Heavy. That was the first time I ever saw a rocket launch in person. And I'm really not happy that it took uh, 50 years to happen because if you haven't done it. You have to. It's watching a rocket launch is probably the coolest thing you can do with your clothes on.
0: So do you think that's what led to your wonder loss in your traveling with the RV was the uh, wanting to travel as a kid?
2: Uh, definitely, because uh, we didn't do it much. I mean, we had like two or three family vacations with the family truckster and the, and the camper. And I always wanted to go more. Every summer, like, oh, we're going to go, we're going to go. We almost never went. So as soon as I turned 18 and had a car, I went uh, camping all the time with my friends. And as soon as I had the opportunity, we cra- moved across. I moved across the country with my best friend to Indiana from Seattle and i've never really stopped uh with logistics for a while drove trucks around and then i had a, when i started my career with after we had our child i was basically traveling probably 30 30 weeks out of the year going around to you know, warehouses and stuff it was great uh, i've always liked it and led to how i'm living my life now i guess
1: your wife is a very patient woman for doing that
2: <laughs> she's extremely patient but luckily she's <laughs> also very she's very independent so You know, it was only when my son was little, that was difficult. But for that period, at least I had, I didn't go anywhere, but I worked the night shift. So we always had challenges, you know, just the way it was.
1: Yeah, Well, I mean, everything has challenges, but I always look at joy and I'm like, you are a very patient woman for doing it. She goes, I love it. And I'm like, uh, yeah, no, any, any perfect man who came up to me and was like, you want to go traveling around in an RV? I'd be like, no, you're no longer perfect. (laughs) So.
2: It, it. I mean, we we practiced for months before we did it. We we had. I, I, I remember
1: trip. watching some of that.
2: Yeah, we had a little RV and we took off for the first trip for like four weeks. Came back months or so later. We left again for like six or seven weeks and we came back and said, "Why are we coming home?" I Never looked back.
0: All right. So now we get to ask your favoriteest questions of them all. It, particularly important since you just left uh, the first con back after the uh, the woo flu. So let's hit this, Doc
1: okay wait oh yeah never mind sorry you got me through me for a second so transitioning away from uh the writing sign side of things have you had any cool fan art or fan cosplay or stuff come on mark i already know the answer so give it to us uh
2: fan art not really I mean, there's been a little bit of stuff out there, but the cosplay, I mean, I have my own fan organization, so I got to see a ton of it this weekend. Uh, the first fantasy was two years ago, and you know, we were still a little bit younger, and there were some people in costume, maybe uh, the dining out, we did a special event, maybe one in 10, um, 10 or 20 people were there, but this year, they were. <laughs> when I showed up at the hotel, one of the Mercenary Guild units, um, the Stormbringers, Stormbreakers? Start Breakers. They had two people as an honor guard at the front door, two Mercs standing there watching the front door. I, I was, and I never looked back from there. There were dozens of people in cosplay. We had more people doing cosplay than David Weber did. I was kind of surprised and happy. <laughs> it was very <really> cool. <laughs> um, but art, not really. Uh, I, I know there's probably artists out there, but we're still growing as a genre. I mean, we're only like four and a half years old. So, you know, it'll come. Um, we pay for most of ours still at this point, but I, I won't be. Unhappy to see some people do some stuff like that.
1: Yes, I remember the dining out. I've I've had many a grog. The grog was much better this year. Thank you. <laughs> yes, Thank it you, was. Kevin Eckenberry.
2: Kevin excelled this year. It was it was not only not bad, but it wasn't disgusting even actually. So
1: toothpaste Although should not I, be grog, and that's what I told them year one.
2: Well, you did the alcoholic. I never touched it. How bad was it?
1: You're the the alcoholic. alcoholic actually wasn't bad at yeah. all. Okay. <laughs> Good. Good. That's like saying one is bigger than zero if you compare it to the year one grog, which had toothpaste in it. I will never forgive them.
2: Well, I, I guess by Avon, you either just in a hurry to get the party going or just liked it. I couldn't figure out which.
1: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so has anybody asked you for your autograph out in public away from a convention or a book signing event?
2: Yes. Um, okay. Joy pimps me regularly. She'll always tell me, you know, my my husband's an author. And she's like, oh, really? And next thing you know, cards are flying. And quite a few times I've had people immediately want a book. And since I live in my house, you know, drive house drives around, I usually have them. So uh, it usually ends up in a book and a signature. It's never had somebody just out of the blue come out of there yet. Um, Some of the other authors in the horseman universe have been recognized in public, but my time hasn't come yet for that.
1: Well, Casey is very recognizable in public. So is Marisa.
2: Exactly. Yeah. So, Actually, in fact, I think both of those were the ones who have been recognized in public is, you know, the girls get all the fun, you know?
1: Yes. That's why we're girls. So, we it you know what? I'm going to say this one. It balances all the weird shit that you guys do to us. We don't do any weird
2: shit. What are you talking about?
1: Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. yeah no. We can well, so, try a new oh,
2: one. There, there we go. All right. Go on to making babies right away. I see how it is.
1: Dude, my hip has never been the same. <laughs> So, All right, so, no, hold on. So, spotted... so I have to know
0: since we're talking cosplay, so does that mean since you said your wife pimps you out, she's gonna wear like the, the leopard skin fedora and like the 80s the seersucker suits when she's pimping you out? That's her cosplay.
2: Mm-hmm. No, she doesn't even go for the high heels, actually. She just kind of just starts pulling out cards, dude.
1: Those things <laughs> hurt. <laughs> she Wait, needs to get her, he her, her high boots.
2: All right.
0: You can ask the next question. This just got weird. It
1: just got weird. (laughs) It didn't start that way. Okay. Um, Damn it, JR. Um, So have you ever spotted someone reading one of your books out in the wild?
2: No, not yet. Um, I mean, at Collins and everything like that or someplace where I might spot them, but just walking down the street. And uh, here's the thing is, you know you know the numbers, like one in ten people when they leave school never read a book ever again. So you're off to the bats there. And uh 75% of people will read less than two books a year. It's just you know, we live in a different group. And even now, I mean, the electronics out number paper books, so you know, unless I lean over their shoulder and happen to realize the book the Kindle on their screen is one of my books, how would you even tell? Uh, when even when I flew three years ago and I was still flying, most of the people who read all oh, were using their computers, their phones, or um, like a you know a kin- uh, whatever the Kindle devices are called, uh, you know, one of those it's computers.
1: Turns. Nooks. They're called Nooks. That's, that's, what that, that's,
0: that's only nooks. because you're from Barnes and Noble and you're not a purist. I love government.
1: my Nooks.
0: So the the sad thing is part of the reason people hate to learn learn that they hate to read is because the crap they make us read in school is so mind numbingly drivel.
1: They like can't some of that read
0: crap. Them. Yeah, you can't I mean, wait to know. Um, um,
1: in an interview was asked how she felt about uh, actually it was also at Dragon Con that she got asked um, how she felt about the fact that the some littlest drummer uh, littlest dragon boy was a um, short story. I think I have the title right. And in, now included in academics, and she goes, "I really wish they wouldn't do that because I want people to like my books, and most people, when they read something for school, don't." So, I um,
2: but I so love I reading. Even a voracious reader. Um, by the time I got to high school, I was a voracious reader. I mean, literally, I would, I, I never went anywhere without without a paperback in my back pocket. You know, people. Purists hate that kind of stuff, but it's like, I would buy it, wear it, use it. By the time I was done with it, it almost wasn't fit to hand down. But I also read a lot of my books multiple times. So, um, it just wasn't unusual to be reading something constantly. Uh, But even then, but you mentioned the crap they make you read in school. I mean, that's exactly it. The last book I remember being forced to read in high school was A Tale of Two Cities. I was ready to pull my own fingernails out by the time I was done with that thing. It was just horrendously long, long, long worded. Yeah, see, I'm a writer. I know words. Long winded. Long winded. That's it. Uh, long. Well, yeah, just. I hate
1: to read. I can fix authors. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <coughs>
0: That's what she tells me all the time.
1: <laughs> no, but I I get it though. Um, I actually had a a teacher who complained to my mom and they and my goes, I'm worried about her social development, and because I I never talked in school. I just read a book and would look at you and go, why are you talking to me if you came up to me and tried talking to me? Mm -hmm. Um, And my other teacher, my my advisor goes, looked at my mom and went, ignore him. She's doing just fine. She shouldn't talk to those kids anyways.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: I was reading the same stuff my English teacher loved. So it was all, she was very biased. Um, so what's the weirdest funniest story you've had of a fan interaction since you started writing and please please remember we are a family show and i've met your fans which is why i'm saying this
2: well that would be one of my actual uh someone related to one of the other authors sending me weird stuff in the mail as replay for a practical joke that would probably have to. oh i remember
1: that 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 was gorgeous
2: yeah the actually chris kennedy's wife Sheila. She uh, apparently she was she didn't like being the brunt of a joke when she didn't get a joke. So she's a apparently an epic practical joker, and then proceeded to send me My Little Pony stuff in the mail with cute little notes with it. And it got to the point I was getting ready to call the post office tell them stop delivering our mail and when she finally came out and admitted it was her. It was more than a year long. It was awkward, but <laughs> as far as fans go, <laughs> so wait, fan wait, wait, wait. There's
0: more. Tell
1: them what it is though.
0: So not only did she send him stuff because I happened to see some of this maybe before it went out, she would write it like mm-hmm. stalkerish so she was cutting out letters of newspapers and magazines and the, oh, gluing no, them on like, with creepy messages.
1: It was very Unipalmer-esque. Yeah.
0: It, it was like a
1: But Mark, you're was are such was a legendary brony.
2: <laughs> did you say I am? Yes. No, I'm not. I wrote about a character who is. Because I was looking for a character trait. And I put it in a story. Now everybody thinks I'm a brony. And I'm not!
1: It could be worse. People think James Hunter's a brony too.
2: Harry Potter's a brony?
1: No, people think James Hunter's a brony too. And he didn't even put one in his books. The
2: reality is I can think of worse things to be if you want to be something out there, you know? But... Yeah, it's just, you know, everybody knows I'm kind of annoyed. It's, it's always one of the most common things to come up. And it's actually one of the biggest common criticisms of Carvath Cavaliers. It's just like, you know, oh, my little pony, I don't want to read this stuff. You know, it's like, wow, that's all it takes to scare you off. I don't know what to say. You know, uh, have you ever read some of the crap out by other authors these days? So,
1: um, Jr. Pay attention.
0: I, I was paying attention. I was just gonna see how long he would rant, but uh, he, I, oh, I
1: thought you were looking for him uh, with a brony.
0: No, no, I was, I was gonna, you know, let that one slide. I think he ranted enough. I just wanted to see if he was gonna keep going. But if you want to stop it and you know stop our fun, I guess no, no, Joy no, no. Will no, thank no. You.
1: I really, I would pay money to see a four hu bronie mashup.
0: I don't think well. So, when that first came out, when that first came out and it was all over the leaderboards, one of the people was talking about it on the Keystroke Medium podcast. And I ended up daring Kayleen to write a a brony My Little Pony Space Marine thing going on. And she ended up taking the idea and turning it into something else. So, it actually exists in the wild, inspired by Cartwright's Cavaliers. Well, by me taunting her because I'd read Cartwright's Cavaliers.
2: That's too funny.
0: Mark, it's your fault. But, well, she's a good writer, so it works out. So when it, if it wins awards, you can you can thank yourself in, in hindsight, I guess. So right, this is the part of the interview, Mark, where we talk about everything you have written. So can you give us the highlights, real?
2: I think I'm more than 30 books. That would be kind of challenging. Um, like I said, Are I started with a song series. The that one's kind of got stuck right now because the sales fell off but uh, the readers have been promising completion and they will get it i've actually been working on outlining for the next book right now um there's my uh turning point series which is zombie apocalypse with a twist no no walking undead they're actually plague victims more like uh 28 days later that sort of a thing um that was three books it's completed uh there may be more that in the future um and of course there's the uh the four horsemen universe which is uh, the 63rd book was published on friday uh, that started on December 21st, 2016, so it's not even five years old. Uh, our average rate, I guess, would be about 15 books a year so far in that neighborhood. We For a while, last year, geez, last year or the year before, we published a book uh, every three weeks. Uh, and that was pretty exciting at that time. We're getting later in the series now, so we're starting to plot out how everything we've been doing will end. It doesn't mean the universe is ending, but we do have plans to, to, to wrap up this plot line, basically the whole overarching story story plan.
0: Okay. So on that future day, a million years from now, when you write the last Four Horsemen universe book, what do you think you're going to pivot to next? Like most of your series are wrapping up. It sounds like you're close to the end of a lot of them.
2: It is. I'm actually right now about halfway through the uh, first one, my first uh, um, urban fantasy. Yeah, the, the series is called uh, The Traveling Gods and the first book is Twilight of the Neon Gods And it's co-written with my wife and uh, I'm hoping it will be well, I'm gonna put it out for publication um, To see who I can get to pick it up, but that's not till um, it, I expect it to be done before Christmas. So maybe you'll see it next year Depends who picks it up. It could be a couple of years or it could be within a few months after it's done. It all depends how that goes
0: Okay so while those all sound fascinating, today we're here to talk about Cartwright's Cavaliers, if you couldn't have guessed. So where did you get the premise for this universe? How did you come up with the idea for the series? Was it psychedelics, a Ouija board, overindulging, and expired Pepsi?
2: <laughs> uh, believe it or not, it was uh, Ready Player One. I, I kind of had this kind of twisted up idea of what if the aliens had like shown up and didn't like us and didn't want to play games with us, but there was this ancient alien technology that only nobody had been able to figure out how to use. And what if it was a bunch of fat grony gamer kids that actually figured out how to use it? See, that's the, that's where that came from. And this technology allowed them to dominate, you know, combat within the universe. And all of a sudden now humans are badasses because of all the, all the fat loser kids, you know, it, why am I saying this out loud uh anyway that was the, the basis of the idea that was literally it and because I'm a I, I'm a pantser I I kind of started with an idea and just started I realized there's got to be a full book in here so if, I just started writing it uh early on though I realized there was a lot of potential so I asked Chris to write with me and he wasn't he didn't have time at that point but when he did a year later we sat down talked about it and realized we had four books instead of one and that was it it was it, the, the final version did not look a lot at all like I had started with it in fact I recently released my patreons my first six chapters of it and it was called the white company at that point
0: okay very different so be- before we dig in too deeply we are going to take a look at this cool cover and uh, while I'm pulling that up why don't you tell us the story of how this this piece of art came to be
2: uh, that was literally a case of Chris uh, he tried to find a cover through um, Dang, what's that one site? DeviantArt. Um, no, no, the, the place that does covers. You you throw out. No, you throw out like a couple hundred bucks as a commission, and they give you examples, and you get to pick one of them. Um, it'll come to me in a minute. But anyway, that he tried to find something there, nobody was coming up anything good. So he happened to find a connection from another artist, another uh, author that had done some co- covers, and the guy was in Thailand. To this day, I don't know what his name is. We to him as Thai guy. And he was our main artist, and he came up with this conception and when Chris explained to it what it was. And at uh, first time I was, I was like, holy hell, that's a Casper. Um, it was absolutely perfect. The only thing wrong with it, and you won't see it there, is you look in the background right down by the blade to the left. It looks like there's a little robot down there on the full blown up wrap. And that was this guy's interpretation of a tortantula. It was it's just like a funky little robot-like thing that looked a little bit like a spider. And we were like, just wrap that thing around and forget about it. It's good enough, you know. The The rest of it became very iconic for the, the way a Casper would look. Um, in particular, that's a Mark Seven Casper we we eventually decided. And that's because on that. later, later covers, you see different versions.
1: Zoom in on the top. There's something really cool up there at the top. The I wonder
0: whatever that might be.
1: Let's I see. Know.
0: What is that? Can you see it?
1: Two thousand seventeen Dragon Award finalist for Best Military Sci Fi.
2: That was the first time wow. David Weber won.
1: That's the first time David Weber won. He, yeah. he lost to David. Okay.
2: Yeah, I lost him several years in a row. That was kind of his specialty, is whooping our butt in the uh, the category. I can't think of anybody better to get beaten by, mind you, but uh yeah, I was a four time nominee. That was the only one to date that I know of. Uh Every year got nominated for one of the books. My first one, though, was actually A Time to Die, which was my first that zombie series I mentioned earlier. So, um, so I was lucky to be in there.
1: Real quick off, offshoot segue, whatever we want to call it. It is, for dear listeners, it is still in the nomination process, if you want to nominate for the 2021 Dragon Award winner. And this is entirely by fans for fans. Yep. So go and then uh, in August we'll put up the voting ballots. Sorry. I think the
2: only requirement is that it has to be a new book that is not a reprint.
1: It has to, uh, it has to be a new book published from like July, I think, July something, 2020 yeah, through yeah. current.
2: Correct. Yep, that's the only requirements for it. Uh, and of course, the person needs to accept when they get the nomination, but uh, they pick the top five, Siska, or top four?
1: They tend to pick the top five, four in um, they they will take category nominations like say you know <clears throat> like heart cavaliers ended up in sci fi as well as mill sf they'll combine them into whatever category it was that got the most nominations in in it so, yeah. so but sometimes that line can be very um sketchy and more of a dotted line than a solid line on the categories so but um we work really hard to get that to to you and every year we and under sci-fi shenanigans we always covered the finalists so this year we're really looking forward to doing that again
0: because now we can talk about more than just sci-fi
1: yes we can talk about fantasies
0: (laughs) wait a minute it's family friendly show
1: i wasn't going there you know what i have a fantasy that brain power burns more calories than it does
0: all right. So now we know the story of that art. The um, um, Let's talk about the book itself. So what would you give as your 30-second elevator pitch for this novel?
2: Kill aliens, get paid.
0: That is 30 seconds. You win.
2: <laughs> uh, I mean, the, the quick and dirty of it is, you know, imagine uh, 10 years from now, aliens land on Earth and there's nothing they, nothing we have that they want. But they want us to join anyway because if we join their galactic union, then we can get all kinds of goodies, maybe, and So we put it up to a vote to a UN and while we're doing that terrorists blow up the UN, kill the alien guards and the alien guards start a war to avenge themselves. And when they do that, they find out we can fight. And it turns out we're one of only 37 races in the galaxy that can do it. And we become one of those that 37th and uh, kill aliens get paid as mercenaries.
1: So what is it that makes your uh, series special and unique in the crowded mill SF series?
2: It started with the four books by Chris and I, but we almost immediately opened it up through anthologies. Uh, we have nine anthologies to date that have published uh, as more than thirty authors, and quite a few of them were brand new, first-time authors. We always try to bring every anthology we do. We bring at least a few unpublished authors into the world. It gives them their opportunity to start. And everybody knows as a, as an author, if you're trying to make it, make trying to make it, you need that those chances. So we're giving them those chances. Uh, in fact, several of our authors that commonly write books now got their start there. Uh, my best friend John Osborne did. I, I, got him a chance to to be one of those authors. I told him, "Hey, you write a story. I'll put it in front of Chris. Not make any promises, but turned out to be great." And then he ended up starting writing books too. And that was his first short story. And he's now written probably six or seven short stories, and I think five novels to date. Uh, the other thing is, it's we have to say it's it's, um, it's fiction without a message. The Four Horsemen universe is just freewheeling. Uh, mecha alien combat sort of stuff. We we don't try to preach to anybody. There's no overwhelming moralistic stories behind it. Uh, it's If there's any moralistic story behind it, it's the morals can get in the way of good fight. Uh, <laughs> it's completely open like that. And we, we all people to come and enjoy the story and went, wow, that was a ripping good tale. What one's next? So, surprisingly, there's 62 more books. Um, and we get no. two reactions after they finish this one. One of them is, oh my God, more books. The other one is, oh my God, that's a lot of books. But either way i don't mind
1: so you know one of your short stories in the four horsemen universe has been on a hugo reading list no yeah I casper's have- Widows, written by J.R. handley i had no idea it was on the hugo's reading list yeah, for awesome.
0: the year that um the year that richard fox won and there was all that hubble i think you'd had me, and i probably butchered your name sir and i'm sorry Uh, It was that year that it made it.
2: Oh, well, very sweet, uh, JR.
1: I can't believe I knew something about 4HU. You didn't. I don't know if Jerry knows that,
2: does
0: he? He did. He's the one who told me.
1: Hmm. I'm so uh, excited. I'm so proud of myself. I wish I knew that over the weekend.
2: I just type on my computer. What do I know? Well, (laughs) you you were probably just caffeinated when he told you,
0: and you're like, sure, uh huh, whatever, and type it away like a trained monkey.
2: that's, That's remotely possible. (laughs)
0: <laughs> I've seen you when you get in your flow state. When you were uh, at that was at the 20 Books Convention in 2018. I, he was sitting at the right at the the breakfast, and we were all supposed to be visiting. And he's like, "Hold on, I got an idea." And he was just clacking away.
1: Hey, so. I, I know better than to interrupt greatness. Uh, yeah.
2: So, if an aside that happened, we were we were actually plotting out the very end of the Four Horsemen universe, the last thing that will happen in this this story arc. And, and I'm
1: surprised the fans uh, didn't know you if they known, they might have stopped. you.
2: Somebody was actually with turns out had been listening in on us and found out about it. Luckily, they're just trustworthy enough probably to keep their yap shut. But the great thing about it, remember, we're pantsers. So if it came out, we would just change it.
0: So the cool thing is, is the convention he's talking about is if you're on the East Coast, there's this little tiny convention called Fantasy Rocks. I think that's his official name. It's tiny by, by Suska that's standards. That's the it's website
1: Sus- address. Okay. Yeah. It's called Fantasite. And I don't, it is a wonderful small con. Don't, don't, don't just because, you know, The entire contents of fantasy fits in fantasy literature. There's no reason to knock it. It is a wonderful small con, and every con starts somewhere. And this is a great one, and it's off to a great start. So...
2: On a healthy gonna- year, we had about 350 people. We got about 250 this year, so it was a little low. But yeah. I mean, I've been to plenty of cons with between two to 400 people that were just absolutely awesome cons. Um, it doesn't have to be 100,000 people like DragonCon, or you know, or even 750. No no, like- no,
1: no, there's there is like, a wonderful uh, charm of a small con where you actually get to see people multiple times. And yeah, Joel line is
2: being the guy who designed it. I think he's still the ComCon, actually. I'm not sure. Um, com-chair. But he, um, he'd he been in dozens of cons. He'd helped with them. He did lots of hospitality with them. And when the opportunity came to do this, he ran with it. And in the first year he did it, he completely knocked it out of the park. We were just stunned. It, I, I've been to cons who've been running for 20 years. that weren't as good as his first year. And it, it was, it, he knows what he's doing. And it's worth attending. Next year, next March, Fantasy. F-A-N-T-A-S-C-I dot uh, Tickets are up already. Um, and uh, I'd recommend going to it. It's a great time. It's in a rally in March, so it's a great early con to start the year off.
0: I was going to make an inappropriate joke, but Doc walked all over it. So you get to ask the next question. He ruined my thunder, stole, stole my joke. I don't get very many of them that are actually funny, but, but okay.
1: Does he always whine this much? No, 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 no. He's just trying to make Cordova look good. Um, So which science fiction fantasy tropes do you feel Cartwright Cavaliers hits best?
2: Well, it's a lot like Starship Troopers. There's a lot of elements to it and that's because of the powered armor. The the book, there never was a movie just to make sure we're sure on that. there's actually we have our own page on um uh, wiki tropes or whatever it is it, story it's, tropes story trope it's extensive we we were looking at it the other day and like oh my god there was like 60 entries on it uh, you know, uh, we have a little bit of the, you know, the uh, unobtanium. You know, F11 in our universe. Everyone has to do it when you world build. You've got to come up with a few things to create limits for stuff to work. And I don't think we went overboard. The weirdest thing we have is is like red diamonds are the main part of currency, and they're actually one of the rarest things you can find. There's only like a couple of red and di- red diamonds in, in existence, bigger than than a than a, uh, than a carrot. So Chris came up with that actually off the spur of the moment. I I had never had any intention of there being hard currency. And he had the idea and I looked him up and I went, wow, that's a really good idea, you know? Um, A few others, I'm sure. Uh, I don't think there's any My Little Pony tropes, are there? No, okay, good. So yeah, we're good.
1: I don't know, we can find out. Listeners, if you have any (laughs) My (laughs) Little Pony tropes, let us know. That's okay,
0: you don't have to do that. It's tvtropes.org, and if you look, when you open that up, you just type in Four Horsemen, and the Four Horsemen universe is its own TV trope.
2: It is, and it's, there's some awesome ones in there, too. I was really, uh, originally I was going to be ups- uh, kind of, uh, you know, offended, and I read it, and I'm like, oh my God, this is all right, and it's really awesome.
0: <laughs> and uh, we will put that link in the show notes, so if when you're watching or listening to this, you scroll to the bottom, where we list all this contact information, we will have this up for you, so you can check it out yourself, give it a read someone put a lot
1: of work in it. So, what um on to kind of more the story itself, can you tell us a little bit about what makes this character, main character special, the special flower child?
0: So, hold on. The, um, this is where he would normally tell us the, about, you know, the genre, but since he's already spilled the beans that this is military science fiction, what is it specifically and you never said about military science fiction as a genre that appeals to you?
1: The
2: gun? I actually can't. I'm not, I never, you know, unlike three quarters of our authors, I didn't serve. I liked pizzas way too much. You know, I rolled into the recruiting <laughs> office at, at 17 and he goes, Well, good son, you got great test scores. Lose 100 pounds and we'll get you in. Like, <laughs> okay. Uh, I think it was more like 50 pounds, but anyway. Uh, so I, I didn't serve. So I think maybe there's a little bit of that. A lot of people did it in my family. My father was a World War II vet. I was a little regretful that, that didn't work out. And this just really called to me. I have so many friends who are vets, and I sit and listen to them, and I listen to the stories, and this kind of stuff really lights my imagination. And I have so much respect for this. I work into my writing, and people – I've had fans ask me a dozen times, so where would you serve? I didn't. And he said, well, you write like you did, and I respect that. And that's partly because I just ask a lot of questions. I pump other people who are vets for, for information and scenarios and situations, and I put as much of that I can into the story. Now, you know, people like Doc Wolrab and others like that, I mean, they really, they write the gritty stuff because they've been it. So I just do the best that I can. But the, the genre, ever since uh, Starship Troopers, it was like, this is really what I kind of want to write. And ironically, that's that was my first real success. It, it's worked really well. Um, you could argue the Earth Song series is also military science fiction. Uh, but it has much more of a space opera feel to it, because the ships can go like tens of thousands of light years per hour and all kinds of crazy stuff like that. This one is this one is as hard science fiction as we can make it. There's only so much you can get away with. So we try to keep it grounded, but sometimes it just kind of flies off on its own. What can you do?
1: Fair okay. enough. So um I know there's a there is a as much as it is a specific subgenre there is also a lot of variance within the military sci-fi story just like there are between different Mm -hmm. kinds of services and service service members so what about it is it that makes your character special and unique for this subgenre
2: um this guy starts off as somebody who would never be in the military uh mercenaries in the forest universe are different are different critters to start with not all of them um i mean the races run from little like chipmunk kind of looking guys up to these you know uh spiders the size of a small car so once you get into that sort of situation, you kind of file the serial numbers off. You're not going to have typical warriors, but most of the earth Mercs tend to be the combat ones tend to be the bruiser types. Usually guys got who got who, who can fight, they can move, they can, they can shoot and move. They can do all these kind of things. And Jim didn't fit that profile. Jim Cartwright's the main character. He's 18 years old at the beginning, and he's supposed to be the heir to one of the illustrious four Horsemen units. This is what the four Horsemen's is all about. And, Things go wrong right before he's supposed to take over. He was going to be able to be in charge, even though he didn't fit the physical mold, because well, he's it's he inherited it. So he probably would have ran it from a chair, that sort of thing. But then everything went broke, and he was forced to to do it himself. There was nobody else to run it. His dad had died, and he has to uh, stand up in the uh, he has to stand in the line of duty and do it. And it ends up that the spirit of his of what he is that he is a Cartwright is enough to keep him going and get him through it. And I've always believed that, you know, heroism doesn't necessarily come with body type. Anybody can be a hero if the situation presents themselves to it. And that's what I wanted for Jim. Um, yeah, he's a little bit of me. Uh, everybody does that. Uh, Larry Korea has his combat accountant, you know, and I've got Jim Cartwright. Uh, Larry, the you know, the uh, Owen Pitt eats a lot less pizza than Jim does. But, um, and, you know, I, I resisted turning him into a stud as soon as it happened. A lot of people were saying, well, why didn't you just get treatments and get thinner? And I was like, he never wanted to. He wants to do it himself. So years down the road, he's slimmed out a little bit, but he still only fits in certain casper's. He's too big to fit in the others and probably always will be.
0: Okay. That was what the It
1: helps when you can write your own AR670-1. So, yep. For those who don't know, that is the uh, AR, the army regulation that covers the wear and fit of the uniform and all those kind of things like health standards. Um,
0: health standards are a myth. You
2: could be to take a take test one.
1: in Cartwright cavaliers. Is that what you're saying, Mark?
2: What was that? I'm just part of that. Rounded
1: is still is a shape.
2: <laughs> well, yeah, I'll be mean for them. You know, even his <laughs> his top sergeant is named Buddha. He's a he's a, a Polynesian, he's from Hawaii and he's a big dude too. But he he was always a lot more muscly than, than Jim was. So it, it was less of an issue to be a Merc. And you know, if if you're in armor and you could be a badass, you could get away with it. I mean, this is powered combat suit, so Um, You still have to be relatively tough and he struggles with that. So maybe there's still hope for us if, you know, first contact happens in four years like it's supposed to.
0: (laughs) Okay, so now you know how it all ends. COVID was just the warm up. So were there any uh, secondary characters that were especially memorable to you as you were writing this first novel in the Four Horsemen universe?
2: Oh, absolutely. Uh, uh Murdoch. He's one of the ones, he was a, a one of the sergeants, uh, Buddha I already mentioned his mentor was a man named Hargrave who had been his father's, uh, second in command for a while. Um, Jim's little friend, Splunk, a fae, an alien fay. He, he meets on another planet that helps him. Um, there was a pretty good cast of characters and some of them are still alive.
0: All right there. Uh, <clears throat> Martin, <clears throat>
2: it'll <laughs> oh. be Chris Kennedy.
0: So Chris oh, is the one Chris that
2: kills all of our favorites. Of oh, he, he's got the higher body count, there's no doubt about it. The man uh, loves to you know, when when you when he asks you for a red shirt, you know, you better be realize you're probably not going to survive the incident.
1: I have never volunteered to be red-shirted.
2: I can take care of that.
1: That's still not you can red-shirt me. That doesn't mean I volunteered.
2: Oh, okay. Well, that's kind of the requirement for any of the readers know, any of the listeners know. If you want to be in a novel, you've got to pretty much volunteer. It's called being a red shirt, like in Star Trek. And it usually means you're not going to survive. Um, we have these things we give out to our notables in the Four Horsemen universe. So if, like, if you had a seriously good death, um, you can earn one of these guys here. This is a, a special challenge coin. Oh, what, hold on. Well, that's right. Let me let me get it out of the sleeve. We can actually see it here. It's a uh, no, basically no. I,
1: go ahead. My given name has appeared in several books as the villain, but I actually was it was not a deliberate red shirting.
2: It's a it's basically it's, 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 a, it's, a, tomb, it's a tombstone with arrows in it, and the tombstone says, I died. And there's a cloud with lightning bolt coming out of it. We conceived of that like two years ago at Fantasy to award to notable deaths. Uh, the first one awarded was to, uh, Chris, to Chris Summercorn, who had a year before won an auction at Liberty Con to be redshirted. In fact, there were two of them, one by me, one by Chris. Actually, it was three years ago now, I think. Anyway, he, uh, so we wrote him into not one Four Horsemen book, not two, but we wrote him into all four of the first Four Horsemen books. And he went from book to book to book until he had met his end in the book, um, The uh, Golden Horde. And it was such a noticeable and notable end and he was such a good sport about it because his character now is literally a trope within the four horsemen universe that we we awarded we created that coin awarded him as the first one and um we may actually have to have some have a summer corn award one day for blowing up so graciously
0: i um (laughs) i got to get killed in a four horsemen universe too and the reason you have to volunteer doc is so you don't get sued if someone doesn't like how you kill them
2: pretty much yeah.
0: it's, it's a don't sue me thing but I uh, I told I, when um, he killed me in one of his books, uh, Chris Kennedy did. And I told him that that was kind of disappointing. He could do better. And uh, that's when he had me visiting a uh, house of ill repute. And I had paid the lady for the services. And then before they were rendered, a space toilet landed on my head.
2: There goes PG-13.
1: JR really wants to be the next Joe Buckley.
0: That's right. I'm going to be the Joe Buckley of my generation.
2: And Joe Buckley has died in the Four Horsemen universe. In fact, I killed him in Cartwright's Cavaliers. Did you so really, I, I missed I have, that?
1: my name has appeared in a Jody Lennon book, Moon Tracks, mm. as well as um Dragon's Kin and um uh, by Ann and Todd. But I, I mean I haven't suing somebody would be mean.
2: Yeah, but it happens, no, so, you're so not that's, that's not capable that about
0: is. mean. Come on. What you I would I would not mean.
1: sue somebody for doing it. But I'm and David Weber made my given name into a human trafficker.
2: Ouch, so did you make he it didn't mad? Tell
1: me at the time though? He just knew apparently my name is evil.
2: You need to put Siska's picture back up, they're all just staring at me, and that's boring.
0: Oh, <laughs> I forgot. I'm sorry, <laughs>
1: I'm right. but you have such a lovely beard. I've been
2: working on it for a while. This is my uh, New York Times bestseller beard. If I ever make the New York Times bestseller list, I'll cut it off, or maybe I'll do it at a charity event at some point. I don't know.
1: We'll see. I, I knew an author, James A. Moore, he got a lot of money when he cut his hair short at a charity auction. They, li- they even, like, the person got to do it themselves. They had a stylist on standby to fix it. But so,
0: All right, so we talked about the good guys. We talked about the secondary characters. Now let's talk about the bad guys. Without any spoilers, what are the uh, antagonists for this story? He's thinking about that beard getting shaved off. Or he froze. Mark, are you still with us?
1: Ah, no. Hopefully he clicks the link and comes back.
0: All right. Um, so while he does that, <laughs> we can see if we can get him to refresh. Doc, why don't you tell us about uh, about the DragonCon stuff that's going on so you can get the update on everyone that wants to know everything about nominating a book.
1: So well, you go, just Google Dragon Awards. And you can it's a Flower Fans by Fans award that uh we have been doing since about I want to say 2017. Uh and we give out the award during Dragon Con. It's a beautiful award. Um uh, it has David Weber has won many as the you know, I have personally teased David Weber that uh he doesn't win honor wins, um, because honor has won several and um but it's so and authors if you're listening and you're like because you love us uh you can there is stuff so that you can pimp and get your uh fans to nominate you so every it's one nomination per person but and you get your ballot um and if you miss oh, we've been doing it since 2016 but in so if you've missed, the um nomination process let's say you can still register to vote and we cover wonderful one second i'm pulling up as we're doing this um what the categories are so and we've done um best science fiction novel best fantasy novel including paranormal, best young adult, middle grade novel, best military sci-fi or fantasy novel, best alternate history, media tie-in novel, horror novel, best comic book, best graphic novel, best science fiction or fantasy TV series. Um, We were by best. uh, We were actually the only award given to the original Wonder Woman movie.
2: Uh,
1: Like, like, the Hugo's and other things kind of ignored her, and that was a crying shame because Wonder Woman is amazing. And if Mark disagrees with me, we'll boot him again.
0: <laughs> we didn't boot him; his internet froze. People,
1: all right. I will so, boot him. Wonder Woman is amazing.
0: Just, we had just asked you before uh, the internet gods tried to go gremlin on your computer. Um, we've talked about the good guys, we've talked about the bad guys, the secondary characters, but we didn't talk about we didn't talk about the bad guys, I should say. So, what are the antagonists in this novel?
2: The antagonists kind of are what ends up being the default. Mark, speak up. And, oh, it must have reached. Can you hear me now?
1: Yeah, yeah I can you. hear you now.
2: Okay. Uh, different tones. the The. Um, <laughs> Ironically, in the Four Horsemen universe there really is no specific villain. They tend to be actually organizations and groups. And in the first one, the villains actually the uh, the mercenary guild itself, which is where we get most of our money led by an alien the known done. as peopleo because they are the mercenary guild is trying to take over humanity to use us in another conflict that we're unaware is going on. So um I mean there's miscellaneous, you know, bad guys here and there, but they tend to be in and out a lot of times. Uh we're kind of hard on bad guys, the humans, because we we don't fight fair, which they don't like very much. And that ends up being a theme actually too. We're we're kind of too good at what we do.
0: All right, yeah. well, you gotta put the booze down and ask your question, Doc. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, I don't. Give us a sneak piece, peek into how the sausage was made. Were there any cool scenes or ideas you left on the cutting room floor? Things you ended up using in the next book? Because, you know, you're like, well, darn it, Chris. I liked this scene and I wrote it. So I'm going to find a way to put it in here.
2: The um, There was a couple of subplots with some characters that I ended up dropping. Because the book was big enough and didn't need it. Um, I planned, like I said, I planned to write this myself as multiple books. And when Chris came in, it changed the scope of it. So I had to narrow it down to, to just about Cartwright's Cavaliers and Jim Cartwright. And when I was doing that, uh, one of the plot lines ended up being with the character named Murdoch, who got his own book titled Dirty Deeds about two years later. Well, everyone had believed he was dead, but he actually survived his death in Cartwright's Cavaliers. He comes back. But when I introduced him, he, his first appearance was... Um, Let's just say it was in a whorehouse while he was doing his job. And, um, it was pretty gritty, including like multiple killings and things like that. Uh, and I realized it was, Chris didn't actually cut it. I did. I realized it was for the kind of theme we were going. It was a little more NC 17 than we'd wanted. So, but I liked the scene so much, I literally picked the scene up and dropped it into Murdoch and just changed the dates and everything around it. So what happened after he'd come back from from the dead. And in that book, I mean, he's there's there's torture scenes, there's you know gruesome killings, there's you know no, houses of ill repute. I think, as you referred to them earlier, it's all in there. It's because it, it, it's old old war. It's it's the old warrior trope, you know, the always beware of an old uh, person, old warrior in a job that usually they die young. Well, that's exactly Murdoch he's almost 80 years old he's been doing this for a long time so you don't want to piss him off
1: fair enough so can you tell mm-hmm. us about the universe i know a lot of times the series though in these kind of series uh the world is as much a character as any protagonist so can you give us a hint of what to expect mm-hmm. from this insanely expensive world that you've created
2: uh that's the great thing about it is i've only created a literal sliver of this there's been so many authors who have contributed uh it quickly got busy enough that we had to set out at that there were core authors there were six of us and we're the ones who are like the guardians of things that happen so that none of the authors writing side books end up walking on the main storylines or controverting ourselves we had to have a universe bible and all of that Uh, how
1: thick is the bible
2: Well, the Bible is a spreadsheet, and it's a word document. The spreadsheet now has got twelve tabs and probably more than two thousand entries on it. That's between worlds and races and things like that. It's absolutely huge. Um, We can never share that.
1: Professionally works with Excel. I'm impressed.
2: We cannot share that document specifically. We have to exude to make the the Bible because that document has all kinds of details and long term plots on it. What aliens are actually called, things like that. but the world itself, I mean, it's extensively like. Give you her you know, Galaxy Quest when he goes down and opens the ship, and the one guy's like, "What are you doing? We don't know if there's air." Uh, yeah, most of the worlds we deal with are somewhat Earth normal. There's <laughs> variations; some are colder, some are hotter. There's, you know, but generally speaking, most of the aliens speak, uh, breathe air, and make noises in a way that we can understand. We have, you know, another tropes you're asking earlier. We have little translator pendants everyone can wear. They're not quite as good as universal translators from Star Trek, but they're they're pretty good. Um, and most life is uh, carbon-based, like us. Although I quickly wrote as uh, exception to that, known as the exotics. An exotic race is one that either isn't carbon-based like we are, it, it it may not breathe oxygen like we do, or it has a biology or intelligence that is not understandable by humanity. So um, one of them is like the and They look like Portuguese men of war. And they live in gas giants, and they 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 don't even think like we do, so they're really hard to deal with. Um, that's our out to kind of get out there and get our full-on alien on. There's a few races like that, too. Although the giant spider tortantulas, that might kind of count as well, because who would want to like go shake hands with a the tortantula? There's just too damn many hands.
1: My favorite alien race of all time is like that. It's uh, Dr. Blanket from uh, AC Crispin, and it's a spore that looks like a blanket, and it's <laughs> telepath.
2: Alan Dean Foster's novel, Nor Crystal Tears, was one of my really influential ones where he created an entire biology in like a um, silicon environment. So everything was completely non, um, it wasn't on our level at all. So even trying to write and understand it, it was really good writing. Foster is one of the best writers of our era. He doesn't get nearly as much, as much credit as he should.
0: Oh, Cartwright's Cavaliers is clearly no, part
1: no, no, of the just series. you He's already said that they're working on the ending, 40, 50 books later.
2: Well, oh, we're actually right. joking. One of our goals would be that the very last book would be book 100. Uh, and we're at 63 now. So maybe there's two more series to go. We'll have to see how it goes. But it'd be pretty cool if it's the 100th book and that's the one where we complete all these storylines. So we know that
0: all uh, every literary universe has its own consistent rules of science, technology, and or magic as applicable. So what sort of tech could we expect from
2: these books? It is a very, as I mentioned, pretty hard science fiction. We tend to stay away from some things. There is the only hard, the only hard and uh, undeniable truth is there is no anti-gravity. Why? And that's, why we, that's almost become a trope in itself, because, because okay, here's the reason. I, I consider it lazy. Um, it's on television and movies for a reason because shooting in zero G is a bitch. So it's easier just to say, oh, we got a reverse gravity or something like that. But that's extended in the writing. So many authors don't deal with it. And that's because it takes more work. You have to decide, well, are they on a, on a gravity deck in a starship or in a space station so there'd be some gravity? Uh, you have to remember that you can't just turn around and pick up something you'd have to float over. Um, I wanted that kind of a world. I wanted to have a little bit of, just a feeling that it's different. Uh, the Expanse is like that. That's kind of why I like that sort of stuff. It's it's better stuff. It, it makes you help remember it. And you. it's one of our signatures. There is no artificial gravity in the four Horsemen universe. Now, that doesn't mean there isn't a situation where you're walking around normally in spaceships because most stations spin. And most uh, starships maintain low constant thrust. That would be your way to have some gravity. So our ships, a lot of them tend to be like buildings. Instead of ships where you walk around in the in the inside on the walls and ours, it's like literally like a building on on a building that lifts off in the space. So you're walking on the floors under thrust instead of on the sides. Um, I like it anyway. I think it's a little, a little different. I know others do it, but um, almost everything else uses artificial gravity. So you don't. That's the only real thing that we don't do. Um, so, faster mm-hmm. than like communications, we don't do that either. So Why? Because we don't. Yeah, you want to send something like that? You send it through a Stargate, and then somebody would carry it like a message on a ship. So in that way, it's a little more like the old West. You know, there's their ships. This job is to carry messages, and they're kind of like the uh, the Pony Express or whatever. But nope, no faster than light communications, at least not yet.
1: So what? Um, that sounds like a, a tease, right there, Mark. Right. Read, uh, uh, read,
2: read the newest book, uh, Eye of the Storm, and you'll find the tease.
1: Okay. So, but getting on with the uh interview itself today instead of don't tempt me with your ADHDness which tech with uh, in your universe would you I'm reading
2: with? the comments here just a second what anime boobs what am i missing <laughs> <laughs> you guys started to look
1: ever it. watched anime well yeah those things don't move naturally yeah <laughs> some of <looks laughs> <good. laughs>
0: But so you know, audience, dear dear listener, if you would see some of the shenanigans that go on in the side chat in our stream yard, sometimes it's everything we wanted to say, but we can't because we try to keep it somewhat PG13 is on
2: stuff. Like well, I'm, a, I'm a bad guest because I'll jump ahead and elucidate. So they're like, oops, skip that one. He already answered that. You know, no, 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 no,
1: no. no. The, I, I, we have so many guests who do, and that's fine. That's why we have the chat window open. But um, but getting on to the topic at hand. Which boobs? one? Uh,
2: you
0: broke uh,
1: her. So of, of, all, of, all of all the tech the, you invented in your use for daily use. Mm-hmm. So I missed. Which point. would you use? It's, it skipped that lost connection for just a second. What did you say? Which tech would you have for daily use out of this okay. universe?
2: Uh, Pin plants. And Is how would a, you use it? Uh, I'd use it to write. I'd use it to communicate. I'd use it to watch TV. Uh, There are cybernetic implants go in your brain. Uh, Most people have one or maybe two. Few people have more. And they link right in with your cerebellum and allow you to manipulate devices. They let you write letters. Uh, You can literally download stuff in your brain, a little like Johnny Mnemonic, but not quite that crazy. Um, And I think we're probably less than 20 years from that. One of our writers, one of my friends, uh, speaker, Rob Hampson, he's working on that technology right now. It's something that one day our kids will will reborn and be a few maybe while they're infants that stuff will be inserted with them and they'll grow up using it just like it's another hand it'll be seamless for them uh for us old farts it'll probably be like <gasps> what are you doing yourself but uh my, my son he's 23 and i said would you do that he said in a heartbeat and i'm like
1: i'd have to think
2: about you digging around in my brain for a while it's you know uh,
1: it, it's my brain as much as i trust rob Ham- hampson it's still my brain
2: <laughs> you only have one
1: yeah, exactly. And it is kind of essential. Um the other, one,
2: the other one would be medical nanites. Those are pretty cool. So if you like, you know, keep the keep one of those in your car like a fire extinguisher and you have a bad crash and you're gonna bleed out, you just jam yourself with that and it'll save your life. Those things are I pretty
1: cool. I thought that was what Monday Monday you that would be great for Monday morning of dragging gun Just saying.
2: <laughs> and there would be abuses of it too. I was just thinking about that.
1: That would probably be Monday morning of dragging. <laughs>
0: So your universe clearly has aliens in it. So how do you go about creating them?
2: Uh, do you let nature inspire you? Do you make them up out of Holcroft, something in between? Uh, I'm accused of using over-anthropomorphizing, but the reality is it's it's just an interpretation. So like people say the, the Zool are a popular race and yes, they were named because of Ghostbusters, but that's because what happens when someone from Earth travels to another planet and sees an alien they kind of get to name it for the first time if they want to. And their, their their translators remember it and it gets shared to everybody. So they looked at him and thought, well, that kind of reminds me of that thing from Ghostbusters. But anyway, the race itself is described as as being like dogs. But in most cases, all that is, is an analogy. So we looked at it and says, well, that kind of looks like a dog, but there's huge differences on them. All the other races are the same way. There's a race called the Minshaw, which looked like praying mantises. But again, they look like it. Um, you couldn't actually have an insect that size there's there's rules of physics that you can't so they're not really insects you know they're actually just uh partially um exoskeleton creatures that are actually warm-blooded just like us Uh, and as far as creating them i let anything i see influence me Uh, i've created so many in this world and others have created so many Um, like my file right now has about 140 races that have been created in the course of writing books, but there's more because they don't tell me all of them. They're supposed to tell me when they make a new one, I put it in, doesn't always happen. So, um, we might have some overlap. Uh and don't ask me what the weirdest one is because it probably involves boobs. (laughs) Okay. So clearly
0: this interview is winding down, but before we wrap
2: this (laughs) up, was there at least you hope it is.
0: Was there anything about Cartwright's Cavaliers that we didn't uh, ask you that you want to tell us about before
2: we move on? I think it's an exceptionally fun story. Um, and I think it's mostly safe for younger people. Uh, and especially if you're if in an in, in era that we're trying to be, have be body positive, it really is a message for somebody that says you don't have to be Studley McMahon muffins, you know, or the, the chiseled superhero that we all have within us to succeed and do things that are great if you, feel that you, if you believe you're in yourself and that's what jim comes down to. he's a character that believes in himself. It, not always, but he he does.
0: okay, and you mentioned in the pre-show something about
2: a kickstarter. so you want to tell us about that? oh uh, uh, yes. Uh, we've run a kickstarter about 2 years ago in, in the forestman universe when it was pretty young. we did challenge coins. kind of a Thing that we thought the fan, we asked the fans what they wanted the most, and everybody loves challenge coins again because we have such a high level of uh, military veterans in our organization. And challenge coins are huge. Now they've gone way outside that now. You know, you've got police officers have them, fire departments have them, the city government has them for crying out loud. So they become so popular that everybody likes to collect them. Well, we did that, went great. And then we realized, well, the next thing would be this user expands, we need a role playing game. That was about two years ago. We started planning and developing. And uh, my best friend, who's also an author I mentioned before, John R. Osborne, uh, euphemistically called Oz, that was his preference. He has been a game nut his whole life. Well, so have I, but he knows the nuts and bolts. So he is our lead designer. We started designing and working on this. And after two years of working and playtesting, testing, uh, we launched the Kickstarter for that on Saturday. So you have the ability now to go in and help us fund this operation. <laughs> And it's gonna be an extensive one. It's the biggest Kickstarter I've ever ran. We need 15,000 just for the base level, uh, but we're already at 80%. So we're probably gonna be there, I'm thinking within two days, but we have lots of stretch goals, bigger book, more art, uh, fancier book, cool things like a challenge coin just for this. And we got t-shirts and some really special stuff coming down in the next week or so, including the ability to create your own mercenary race, your ability to have your Merc company written about in the book, and the final level, you actually have the ability to star in a four-horseman book. We will write you in a book. Me and Oz will write together, so you get to uh, live out your fantasies of being a mercenary yourself.
1: And then killed? No. And,
2: well, no, not necessarily. You might get to live because people like it. We'll write another one. Okay. And, and you uh, got, we uh, know, that, uh I believe Jr. Right.
0: I'll get it right. from you after we're uh, we're off air, and I will throw it in the show notes because this will be going out um, this week.
2: That sounds so, awesome. Um, how long is the Kickstarter running? Until what date? It's 45 days, so you have plenty of time in case payday right. comes to the end of the month or something like that. And you know what, even throw a buck in for now because other stuff comes up, you may change your mind. And uh, $15 gets you the ebook and all of the art we're gonna use. And for 25 bucks, you get a copy of the hard paper book. And there's all kinds of other things you can do. It's in Savage World, so it's a great system. Uh, I haven't played many games in years, and I was able to pick this up in hours. We had the last playtest we ran at Fantasy. We had eight players there who uh, bid in an auction to begin it for charity, and they had a great time. We many many best with were killed, and dice were thrown, and and pizza was eaten. It was an awesome time. It's a fun game system.
0: Okay, and then the other reason we had you here in the time that we did, because we've been trying to bounce back and forth between fantasy and sci-fi, and if you might have noticed, we're doing a sort of a blitz of military sci-fi, is because there's a story bundle out, which this story is included in, uh, over on storybundle.com backslash sci-fi, where for uh, anything you pay, you can get uh, four books for anything you want to, but if you hit the the bonus uh, of $15, you unlock a total of 19 books to include uh, this novel um, the complete box set of um, short story content um, anthologies by Kevin J. Anderson, um, wow. a box set of Shadow Warriors by Nathan B. Dodge and a bunch of others. The link will be in the show notes. That's a lot of cool. So it, it's one of those things where the most of the money – goes to the authors this time instead of some of the publisher houses like Amazon or Barnes and Noble and a percentage of the profit and of yours, you get to pick what percentage, uh, goes to charities. Um, and the, as uh, well
1: as for the reader, it comes in typically DRM free. So you can download it on however many devices you need to, because I've been doing story bundles for so long. I have had to replace not one, but two ebook readers during the time in which I've done story bundles. Mm -hmm. I have, uh, I've been doing story. Well, I've been doing story bundles since 2014 or 13, mm-hmm. so right. that's almost 10 years, and I have like 20 something story bundles. But so, how do you
2: get a buck a book? That's a pretty good deal, you know. Yeah, and this yeah. story,
0: um, this charity in question is the Challenger Center. So it's a space themed organization that helps sort of promote awareness and and
2: uh, I see kids there.
0: So it's it's definitely worth doing. Check it out if it's uh, if it's your thing. Uh, if not, buy it for your friend and gift the books. So as we wrap this up because Seska's gonna fall asleep any second now, Mark, how can <laughs> listeners and viewers find you?
2: Uh, simplest ways you can uh, you can go to Facebook. Uh, I'm usually there if I'm not banned. Uh, it's, it's a, you can just search for Mark Mark Wandry author. I'm there. He's gonna put the links up for that also. Uh, I'm on Twitter. also as Mark, a great thing about having a name like this is you know if, if book, bookstores were really big still, I'd be down on the floor. But now I'm unique so I'm easy to find you just't go what to Amazon type in Mark, are really big and there I am I'm all over the place. Uh, I'm on Twitter, I'm on Instagram, I'm on Facebook and I'm all under Mark Wandry and uh, my, my website is www.worldmaker all dot us and we have merchandise and all kinds of cool stuff there.
0: And you will uh, you'll get to find us. I'm going to leave that cover up a little bit so you can glory at that artwork before we wrap this up. You can find us on our website at anchor.fm backslash blasters tech and tech blades anchor.fm backslash blasters tech and tech blades. We're on Twitter at SF underscore fantasy underscore show Sierra Foxtrot underscore fantasy underscore show. You can email us at blasters and blades podcast at gmail.com. We even answer it. Sometimes we promise we have a Facebook group at facebook.com backslash blasters and blades podcast you can support the show on the aforementioned anchor.fm backslash Blaster Stack Tech Blades or at a monthly fee of uh, $5, 10 or $15. Or you can support us on a one-time donation at buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Hanley. And be sure to put in the comments section that it is for the podcast, and we will make sure we keep Nick Garber and Doc Saska intoxicated so they are the wife of the party while, I, while I'm the sober bus driver. All right.
1: Thank you for spending right. some of your prep, what? I was going to say,
0: bring it home before you fall asleep.
1: I'm not asleep. I did that at work today by accident. We're good. Uh, <laughs> thank you for spending some of your precious, t- precious time with us for the overworked Mick Garber, Jr. Handley, the uh, long-suffering one. Uh, I am Seska. This was the Blasters and Blade podcast. We'll be back next week with at the same time where we'll indulge our love of nerd culture, cheesy jokes, all things that go boom and Of course, Dragon Con and Pineapple on Pizza and Pern is sci-fi. Have a nice night.
0: We're going to end on lies. Lies. A house of lies.